This is NiceAce Now, your source for real-time and on-demand professional learning designed specifically with the independent school educator in mind. A podcast of interviews, seminars, and conference talks to listen to whenever and wherever you like. Brought to you by the New York State Association of Independent Schools. I'm George Swain. In this interview at the NiceAce Business Managers Conference at the Mohonk Mountain House in May of 2018, author Grant Lickman and I discuss his recent book entitled Moving the Rock. In it, he explores the challenges and possibilities facing independent schools today. Well, I'm sitting with Grant Lickman at the NiceAce Business Affairs Conference at the Mohonk Mountain House. Grant, thank you so much for sitting down for this interview with us. And Pretty nice to be here, uh, both with NiceAce and all the business officers and, and at Mohonk Mountain Resort, yeah, <laughs> tremendous venue. Wonderful. And uh, uh, Grant is a former independent school teacher and administrator, as you know, and author of several books, most recently, Moving the Rock. Could you talk a little bit about the thesis uh, of your most recent book um, and the metaphor of the rock? Yeah, the thesis is pretty simple. Uh, I think most people would agree that for decades, American education writ large has been largely stuck. Uh, it hasn't moved a lot. Uh, while the world around us is changing dramatically, the system of education has really sort of stayed in one place. And you have to ask yourself, you know, what is that? And uh, if you think about simple physics, uh, a, a body at rest uh, stays at rest unless it's acted upon by other forces. And in the case of uh, education, these forces have been highly contrarian for decades. If you think of the forces that have buffeted American education, uh, which impact both public and private schools, you have the political left and right, you have people who, uh, and strong interests that say we need to do more testing, and people who say we need less testing, more standards, fewer standards, uh, the teachers' unions are great, the teachers' unions are terrible, the government state houses, and the net result of all that has been a remarkable uh, moment of inertia. And as an old geologist, I think of this big boulder just stuck and really hard to move. And so I asked myself uh, uh, the, this question, uh, are there uh, things that are happening in education that actually are starting to have significant impact on uh, the system that don't require uh, permission or empowerment by the forces that have created this inertia in the first place. In other words, uh, individuals and groups and uh, uh, teachers and parents and students who are just saying, you know what, uh, we can do better. We can have a better system of education that's more relevant to our students in their uh, today and in their future. Uh, and we're not necessarily going to ask permission. We're just going to start doing some things. And so uh, I was fortunate to I just interacted with uh, probably 70, 80, 90 uh, educators, non-educators, thought leaders around the country at, got their input on this and, and it turned out there were at least sort of these seven what I call levers, you think of levering a rock to get it to roll, uh, that are being inc incredibly effective uh, in, 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 at the site level, the district level, regional level, uh, across schools of very different socioeconomic and demographic uh, and, ge and geography. Uh, and, and that other schools and districts can look to to say, well, wait a second, if, if what we want to do is this, and that district over there is already doing it, or that school is already doing it, well, then why can't we? And that was really the thesis, and I think uh, hopefully it provides a lot of uh, examples and uh, uh, 
gives people that sense that they're not, they don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's tremendous, uh, there's a tremendous tide of evolution going on in America today. It's not equitable, it's not evenly distributed, uh, but it's happening. Uh, and it's happening despite uh, these sort of big inertial forces. So I don't think you'd find a lot who'd argue with that thesis that uh, there's a, a system of inertia in place in terms of schools uh, and change. And you could walk into a school today and see something that looks a lot like uh, what that same school might have looked like 100 years ago. But what would you say to people who say, so what? Why does it matter? Yeah. Why do schools need to change? Well, I think there are a, a number of reasons, some of which I have been bandied around for you know, 15 or 20 years. Uh, the most common one is you know, the, the old adage that a certain large percentage of the jobs that our students are going to be employed in and going to encounter in their future haven't even been invented yet. So just teaching the same thing that we were teaching 20 or 30 years ago to prepare students for a future that is vastly less predictable uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. The, the demands of, uh, uh, of our economy, of uh, higher education, are changing. And so we have to change in order to meet a new set of design standards. Uh, but I think there's some other really very fundamental and foundational reasons that education has to change. And I'll give you probably my, the number one. Uh, we are right now, and, and this isn't just coming from me, I think a lot of people uh, uh, are echoing this, we are right now experiencing the incipient stages of perhaps the most fundamental evolutionary period in, uh, in the history of humanity. And that is the incipient development of what I've labeled it the cognitosphere, others call it the metaverse and other terms, of, of, of a global social neural network that connects everybody in the world who has access to the internet, which is right now two to three billion people. In 10 years, it'll be four to five billion people. And the currency, that, uh, uh, that flows through this network is the creation and sharing of knowledge. Uh, the fact is, is that in the past, uh, schools, universities, you can think of a university that's had a wonderful library and a strong faculty, et cetera, in the past, the, 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 the relevance and the value of that, uh, the shelf life of that is essentially decreasing all the time because of the rate of change in the world around us. So schools need to become uh, the centers and the nodes and the transmission wires of creating and sharing uh, evolving knowledge, not just things we've known in the past. And that's a pretty good reason why schools, the structures, the systems of schools need to change. Uh, we're living in a time that is, that where the, the fundamental relationships amongst humans and the reason schools have existed in the past, the transfer of knowledge from one generation to the next, to the next is already beginning to happen in fundamentally different ways. And if schools don't respond to that, they risk irrelevancy. Well, reading your book, I found your message to be really optimistic. You know, I, I, I found um, you to be uh, fairly hopeful um, about the potential that uh, individual common citizens have and, and that uh, school leaders uh, have as well to transform the schools that, that our, our children have at their disposal. Would you talk about some of those levers? What, what would you, I don't know, you, you mentioned you had seven. Um, you outlined seven in your book. Are there some that you feel are more critical 
for people to focus on before others? Is there some prioritization? That well, I, I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily say prioritization, but maybe a couple that are easy to understand. For example, the, the first one I start out with in the first chapter I discuss the levers is merely uh, uh, creating a demand in the community, creating an awareness and a demand of how school might look differently. Uh, as you know uh, from some of the work I've done with your constituent groups in, in the past, uh, when we ask stakeholders, teachers, administrators, parents, students, we ask them what they really value about learning, what they really want to get out of a learning experience, we get responses that paint a picture that's very different than the traditional school system. Uh, and so uh, when schools or school districts uh, put, put forward, create an example of what a different one that is more engaging for the students, where the students have more ownership of it, where they take more direction of their own learning pathways, where they're allowed to be more creative. Uh, it turns out that a lot of people say, wait a sec, that, that's what I want. I want something more like that. So if there's in a, in a city or community, if there's an example, it's a huge lever because now all of a sudden parents and teachers can say, wait a second, I, I can do that too. And by the way, that's what I wanted to do all along. It's doable. Uh, and so that's a huge lever. Um, another one that I just was blown away by, at George, when I was researching the book was this idea of schools becoming much more a part of the community rather than having this sort of boundary, you know, today, now I'm on campus and here I'm off campus. Uh, I could have written an entire book and not even scraped the surface. Uh, with examples of schools, and by the way, I'll say primarily public schools and charter schools, not the independent schools, uh, that are an entire districts and regions where students and teachers are involved in authentic learning experiences, learning relationships with, with and in members of their community. Not going in the community for a service learning project for a field trip, but to learn in and with the community resources that are available, whatever those are. Uh, one of the examples I, I, I use, I didn't even know about, was the Remake Learning Group in Pittsburgh. City of Pittsburgh, there are thousands of students, teachers, and community stakeholders involved daily, weekly, uh, providing learning experiences for students and teachers that they never would have had without those resources. Uh, so it's a region-wide effort, uh, which could be replicated. And that's why, I guess why I'm optimistic, is because if you look at something like that, you know it's replicable. Now, am I optimistic that every school is going to make it through an evolutionary period? Well, the fact of the matter is no. In, in no period of evolution does every individual or every species make it through the evolutionary transition. That's just it runs contrary to what we know about evolution. Uh, but I am optimistic that those organizations, uh, schools and districts and communities who see this as an opportunity, uh, see evolution as an opportunity to, to evolve, to, to change what they've been doing in, in order to meet, the, meet future demands, uh, will have very, very bright futures. But there's going to be some shaking out of those where schools just, um, you know, for whatever reason, aren't ready or willing or able to, uh, to, to shift practice along with the times. Well, to further explore that vision you have of the future, you in the talk you gave shortly uh, before we sat down, you mentioned that there were essentially three camps that you see schools 
evolving into over the next 25 years. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and I, again, I, I, that's not just me. I think, you know, drawn on others, uh, including I had lengthy discussions <coughs> with John, uh, John Gula, who I credit with a lot of that, helping me evolve that thinking. Uh, we, we, we look out 25 years. And we know that the market for education is dramatically differentiating now. Families have many more choices, uh, than, and they're taking advantage of many more different types of educational opportunities for their kids than, the, than they had a decade or two ago. Uh, and you ask yourself, uh, you know, wh what's the what's the ultimate, what's the inevitable sort of result of that? And, and we've come up with really the best we can say is is that uh, all schools in whatever 15, 20, 25 years will probably fall into one of three camps. There'll be the groups that uh, really are so well insulated uh, through a combination of uh, maybe their market position, the geography, the socioeconomics, their financial condition, whatever it is, that you know the world can kind of change around them and they're, they're, they're buffered from all, from all of that. Uh, we think it's a fairly small group, but there are, there are those that will fall into that category. The second group are, are, are schools and school systems that really clearly offer the community a clearly differentiated choice. Hey, this is why you should send your kid to our school, uh, as opposed to all the other opportunities that are out there. Uh, and the third group, unfortunately, are schools that will struggle and fail because they don't have the resources to be in the first category, and they haven't offered a clear enough value proposition, whether that requires payment and tuition or, or not. And I have visited districts, and it's not just me, they're all over the place. If you go to a district where there is, in public schools, where there's district-wide choice, you have winners and losers. You have public schools closing because families are deselecting from this public school to go to that one. Uh, so that school's going to close, uh, even though it doesn't cost anything, uh, or doesn't cost anything in terms of, of, of tuition or in addition to tax base. So we see those as the three categories, and uh, the best route to, for most schools is going to take a really hard strategic look, true strategy of how can we deliver a consistent, sustainable value proposition sufficient to attract enough families uh, to stay with us in the long run. Excellent. Well, looking at the past um, five to ten years in independent schools, I think uh, there's been a tremendous um, uh, change, uh, energy around um, thinking about the future, what students need. And it's come at the same time as you might even describe uh, something as like, it's a bit like a facilities arms race. It seems like you go to a, a campus and, and um, it's not long before somebody starts either showing you plans or showing you the new building that was just built. And all of that's quite expensive. I, I don't know what your thought is about facilities expansion. Is that the way schools should be approaching this kind of transformation of their approach? Well, first of all, let me, let me say, and this has been a mantra of mine, as I think you probably know, George, for a long time, uh, I don't believe in cookie-cutter recipes. I don't believe that there's one, one size fits all solution to all schools. I've been fortunate and honored over the last four or five years to visit and work with everything from some of the most well-endowed blue blood uh, East Coast boarding schools and some uh, very underserved public schools in some of the most underserved parts of our, of our country. Uh, so there's no one-size solution fits all to all of these. With respect to independent schools, I mean, clearly any given school has facilities needs. Uh, I was at a school that had uh, 100 years of deferred maintenance in our buildings. And whether we wanted to or not, uh, we had to tear some buildings down. Uh, you know, this is the, the plumbing and the electrical was 100, 100 years old. Uh, 
Having said that, yes, we know, of course, that in the last 20 years, many independent schools have been caught up in an arms race, as have colleges and universities, building more attractive, sexier, new type of facility. And in some cases, that is necessary, but it's also been an easy default for schools to say the, the, the solution to our problem is to have something that's going to attract X small additional percentage of families for the short term in some, some attractive new building. When we look out 20 or 25 years and see the impact that uh, things like virtual reality and artificial intelligence uh, will have uh, to allow really amazing learning to take place that's not constrained by the four walls of a classroom or the individuals in that room. Uh, I, think we, I think schools have to take a really hard look uh, at, 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 at whether they want to build that next building. I mentioned in the, in the, uh, in the, in the talk today about a, uh, somebody, and I won't mention the name of the school, uh, was all ready to build an $8 million new classroom building, and then they realized they could meet all of their really very forward-leaning, I say really forward-leaning, deeper learning, uh, pedagogy, curriculum, instructional objectives by not, by not building that building, by doing some tenant improvements on the classrooms, and they saved about $6 million out of, eight million, out of an $8 million uh, building budget. And boy, I just applaud them so much for saying, time out, what are we really building this building for? What, you know, this is about learning. You know, if there's one thing that all schools need to be good at, it's learning. And so we need to drill down, uh, find the roots of great learning, great instruction, great experiences, uh, intrinsic motivation for students. And uh, you and I know, we all know, that that can happen on a hillside. It can happen, uh, I always reference uh, Science Leadership Academy in Philadelphia, a public school in one of the, you know, they wouldn't mind me saying so, uh, a pretty crummy old high-rise building uh, and one of the most iconic learning experiences I think anywhere in America because of the pedagogy, the instructional practices, the teaching, and the learning that's going on there. So I think people have to be careful about saying we can solve our problems by uh, you know, just building a, a, a nicer building. It's a huge expense and that money put up could be maybe better used elsewhere not the least of which would be lowering the, the, the price point for uh, families who uh, just cannot afford uh, independent school tuitions. Well, you have, as you mentioned, uh, visited a wide, wide range of schools all over the country, um, you know, independent schools, public schools, charter schools. When I think about the needs of independent school leaders to focus on their constituencies and on their um, you know, the future of their organization. Uh, I wonder what advice you have for them, either things that you've learned from successful independent schools or things you've learned from successful public schools. But what should independent school leaders really be focused on, would you say, for the next? Well, and I appreciate you saying, you know, we can learn some things from, uh, not only from, from public schools, but uh, from non-education systems as well. Uh, because really it's about, uh, independent schools are uh, a set of organizations that are experiencing a powerful evolutionary market changes. And those uh, uh, types of forces we find uh, across, throughout history, uh, impacting a lot of different organizations. So we want to learn from uh, a wide range, not from a narrow range. Uh, and so I think the, some of the comments I'll make, I think apply to 
many types of organizations. Uh, independent schools, uh, I think, have over the last couple of decades fallen into a, uh, they, they have not uh, as a whole been thinking as strategically as, as they need to. Most strategic plans that I've read from independent schools, and this applies to public schools as well, frankly are not terribly strategic. They're largely tactical. They largely are a set of uh, tactical responses to improve what that organization has been doing in the recent past. Essentially, the way I put it is this. We largely, as independent schools, look at what we've been doing for the last five years, and we say, let's decide how we can do that a little bit better. Uh, and that is not a recipe for strategy. That's a recipe for continuing uh, what may be slightly more than mediocrity in some cases. Uh, so leaders need to be vastly more strategic in their thinking. We need to look outside of our own experience. We need to look at the, how the world is evolving around us. We need to understand what those pressures are. We need to be highly pragmatic and honest with ourselves. Uh, we need to ask some really tough questions that create discomfort, frankly, for many of our stakeholders. Uh, as I said to the group today, um, the world we live in today is what we call a VUCA world. It's vastly more volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous than the world has been in the past. And yet, I think we would all agree that many, if not most, educators did not go into the system of education because they wanted a career that was going to be more volatile, uncertain, and ambiguous. Uh, it's just not part of our uh, cultural DNA. Yet, that's the hand we've been dealt. So it's up to leaders to really peel this back a little bit and ask themselves, are we truly uh, looking at this, uh, looking at the challenges in, in a strategic sense, or are we just trying to improve a little bit on what we've done in the past and hope that it's going to be okay? Uh, because hoping that it's gonna be okay is never a good strategy. Uh, and even some of the, the most well-insulated schools in America, both public and private, are asking these questions because they know they need to, because they know the, the, the fragility is there. Uh, so I, I think that uh, uh, independent school leaders need to, I'm encouraging them to take a hard look at what we mean by strategic planning, the, the processes we go through, how can we make these uh, visionary documents and these visionary uh, processes much more truly strategic in a time when the world is going to change in the next five years more quickly than it did the last five years and the last five years before that. It's the hand we've been dealt. We need to change our practice. That's our responsibility and role as leaders of a school is the long-term sustainability of the school, uh, even if it gets us out of our comfort zone. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me this afternoon and uh, wish you all the best of luck with your travels and thank you for the uh, contribution your book has made to the... My pleasure, and I'm always happy to come and collaborate with all the great NYSACE and, and independent schools here in New York. Thanks, George. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this NYSACE Now podcast. Production support comes from Andrew Cook. Interview and conference support by Judith Sheridan and Barbara Swanson. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. For additional podcasts, as well as information about our conferences and other programming, please visit our website, nysais.org